are one. One in the call to pray to God. One in the love that calls us to that prayer. May I remember that we are one. Why is that so hard to remember? I mean, even Isaiah, as he announces the coming glory of the Lord, includes creation itself among those who will rejoice. We do not live. We do not believe. We do not worship. We certainly do not pray in isolation. We may not all be in the same room, but still, despite our differences, we all are called to pray to the same God. We too are one. As hard as this is to remember, it's even harder to live into. Maybe because while we are all called by the one to be one in, in love, still, we have tons of differences. And sometimes they're hard to reconcile. It's really hard to understand one another in our differences sometimes. We have different opinions. We have different understandings. We have different assumptions that we hold. We look different. We feel different. We express those different feelings in different ways. We have different knowledge. We have different life experience. We are different people. My mom gave me these bath salts one time. If you can't read the quote, it's attributed to Oscar Wilde, and it says, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. <laughs> of course, I look at that picture, and I think, I want to be her. She looks so fun, so eccentric. Oscar Wilde's advice, though, is sound, because it's true. As much as we might like to, we can't be anybody else, no matter how hard we try. We can't change who we are. I mean, maybe we can change some of our behavior. Maybe we can change a few of our habits. Maybe with a whole lot of prayer, we might be able to change some unhealthy thought processes or some harmful belief systems, but we cannot change who God created us to be. We can't change our DNA. As a child, I desperately wanted for my freckles to go away. And no matter how hard I prayed, no matter how many remedies I tried, it just didn't happen. It's part of who I'm created to be. We are all so different. Jesus was different, for sure. People just could not get a good read on him. They couldn't understand him. His differences were so great that some people couldn't accept him at all. Some even wanted to kill him blot out his existence altogether. If you can remember way back to the beginning of our worship service, that reading from Matthew's gospel, Jesus enters Jerusalem. He's been in ministry for three years now, and still people don't get him. They just don't understand him. They don't know him. Who is this? Many of the people who see him enter Jerusalem are crying. That's what they're asking. As Jesus rides in on a donkey, 
saddled with random cloaks, parading in on a carpet of palm branches. Who is this? I can hear the incredulity in people's voices. I mean, it is odd, this strange procession. There are a couple of different competing symbolic actions going on. First of all, the palms, they were generally meant in ancient times to celebrate and pave the way for the return of a king or some great war hero. And in the midst of this great fanfare, what seems to be the announcement of a mighty warrior king, a largely unknown man trots in on a donkey? There's no crown. There's no regal cloak billowing behind him. There's no mighty sword. Just an ordinary looking man on a lowly beast, a beast that carries the burdens of the people. It was a symbol of peace. Who is this? They have no idea. I suppose you can't really blame them. I mean, it's not emphasized as much in Matthew's gospel as in Mark's gospel, but still, Jesus often, even in Matthew's gospel, commands those that he has healed, those that have experienced or witnessed his miracles to keep it quiet. Shh, don't tell anybody. Jesus is not anxious to become known. While Matthew makes it very clear from the first words of the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus himself often hides who he really is, which makes sense. I mean, especially when you know the end of the story, right? I mean, once it becomes clear, especially to the Jewish religious leaders and to Rome, who the people say that he is, things get extremely dangerous for Jesus. Sadly, it is not always safe, even in a community of faith, to be completely open with who you are. It's not always safe to fully reveal your identity for a whole lot of reasons. I have a video for you. It's about eight minutes long, and it is well worth the watch. Enjoy. My name is Louise Morse, and I am a charter member of the Westlake United Methodist Church. I was living in Westlake Hills when the church started. And the first, I, rem I don't remember a whole lot about it. It's like 40 or 45 years ago. One day, someone called me from a Methodist organization somewhere and said that the people out here wanted to have an organizational meeting and they were going to have it in someone's home. And I can't remember the name of the home, but uh, I was invited. And I thought about it and thought about it. And I decided that, uh, that I probably didn't want to get that involved because of my sexual orientation. I really did want to have a church and I really did want to be involved in it, but I decided to step back for the good of the church. And that's what I did. So. For 42 years, I guess it is, I've been a member of that church, but I had to keep my identity hidden because I felt, and I didn't feel like it. I knew that there were people there that would object to uh, gay people coming to that church. And 
it it was prevalent in society at that time. But also, when you're when you're a gay person and people don't know you are, <laughs> you hear a lot of things said. <laughs> but I liked the music in church, and um, and I liked sermons in church, and I liked to pray in church, and those were reasons that I went to church there. And when all of that was over, I was pretty much out of there. I never did join a Sunday school class or anything like that. So. Uh, that went on for about 40 years, and then all of a sudden I heard about the Journeys class. Someone in the Journeys class had seen me at what we call the Black Tie Dinner in Austin. I was the co-chair of a Black Tie Dinner one year that's predominantly for gay people, and it's, about, it's held in a hotel downtown, and there are five or six hundred people go, and all the politicians go, of course. And so I thought, uh-oh, I've been outed. And it was Marina, and so Ever since then, she's invited me to come to the journeys class. And of course, I knew that she had figured out that I was gay. And finally, I did start going to the journeys class. And it has been a real liberating experience for me to be around people who understand me and they don't care in the first place. They have, and I've been more than welcome. Most of the people who object to, uh, people of a different sexual orientation simply do not understand. And the two primary reasons that I can figure out that they object to it so much is, one, they think that uh, homosexuality is environmental, and it isn't. And they think it's a choice, and it isn't. And I want to talk about the uh, environmental part first because my... In, my environment, it was definitely not what caused my sexuality, and neither is it anyone else's that I've ever known. I had a sister a year and a half older than me, and um, we were exactly alike. Everything I, everything she did, I did, or I was going to die trying. And and every time my mother talked to one of us, she talked to the other. We were we were just very very close. We wore the same clothes, I wore the same size, and she wore my clothes and I wore her clothes, and we'd swap out, and that way we had more clothes. And um, we ate the same food, we had the same parents, we lived the same place, we went to the same school, we went to the same church, we had the same brothers, we did the same work, we lived in the same bedroom. There was absolutely no difference in us, in the environment that we lived in. But when she got to be about 13 or 14 years old, she started wanting to date boys. And already I knew that that I, that I wasn't going to do that. If I hadn't already known what was wrong with me, I was told all the time. I heard about homosexuals and I didn't, I didn't know what homosexual was. I knew how I felt, but I didn't know what it meant because people where I came from didn't talk about stuff like that and neither did they talk about it in church. And I'd never heard anything about what the Bible any of the what, what we call clobber verses in the Bible about homosexuality. And then when I heard the word queer, I th it just absolutely frightened me to death. I thought, that's me. And so it scared me. And, um, and I started trying to sort it all out in my mind. And, and I dated guys. Uh, and I thought, I'll just change myself. And I changed my thought processes. And, I, and fortunately, there was no such thing as premarital sex then, so I could date all the time and didn't have that work to worry about. And I would try to make myself be attracted to men. I tried everything that I could think of, and, and as a last resort, I thought, well, I'll just get married. And so I did. 
And of course, that was a disaster. And then is when I found out for the first time, and I'm sure other people found out earlier than I did, that the Bible talks about gay people in an unfavorable way. And uh, the word that hit me the worst is that I was an abomination to God. And then the natural thing to think that you come to after that is, well, that's what's wrong with me. That's why I've got all these problems. God is punishing me. And so you're in a, living in a position that you can't change, or you certainly would have, and, and God's punishing you, and you can't handle that either. So you get panic attacks. I thought, I just cannot handle this anymore. So I had a, a intervention with God, and then after that moment forward, I knew that God loved me. Something happened and that God did not care. And it enabled me to begin to get my brain straightened out and get my life started again. And it took quite some time, but the panic stopped, stopped and, and, um, and then I was able to kind of, uh, I actually started enjoying going to church, even though I still had my life hidden. And I hope that, I think that most people now realize that it isn't a choice because there's enough evidence around everywhere that they should be able to see that it's not a choice. But then there are the people that say, well, if it's not environmental and if it's not a choice, at least you don't have to act on it. And so I think that the only person that could possibly say something like that would be someone who has never, ever in their whole life experienced love of loving someone. It is, that's one, I, I think that's probably one of the strongest emotions that God gave us, is to be able to love somebody. It's all consuming. It's, and it's, it's your whole life and everything you want. It's demanding, you cannot resist it. And they must have never experienced that and having someone love them. Because you just can't, you cannot just say, well, I'm just not gonna love somebody. I suppose you could, turn and walk away, but what you had left would be nothing but a shell of what you could have been if you hadn't, because you've left your whole heart and your whole soul, your whole life behind you. It is so diverse what people think about what's said in the Bible, but my own conclusion is that I'm okay with God right now. At one time, I was asking God to take my mind or my life or whatever God wanted. I was just through, but it did not happen. And, um, and my life is much better now. I really did want to have a church, Louise says. I like the music in church. I like the sermons in church. I like to pray in church. May I remember that we too are one. One in the call to pray to God. One in the love that calls us to that prayer. Louise is called by the very same love that calls all of us to church because it's where Louise connects with her God. 
our God. But for 42 years, she had to keep her identity hidden from the people of God because of her sexual orientation. It was not fully safe for her to reveal who she was because of the way that some people understand homosexuality as a deviance that's either the result of a person's environment as they grow up or a personal choice and or because of the way some people interpret scripture. A literal interpretation of the roughly five to eight passages that refer to homosexuality in the Bible led even Louise to believe for a time that she was an abomination to God and that God was punishing her, which was really hard for her to take given that no matter how hard she tried, she could not change who she was, even though she prayed to God to take whatever God wanted, her mind, even her life. She was stuck. It was in her DNA. Jesus's entry into Jerusalem was the beginning of the end for him. Because that odd parade that marked his entrance into Jerusalem also outed him. It's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee, announced all those who knew him. Between that and the palms and the people's cries, they all signaled who they claimed Jesus to be, king and Messiah, two titles that set him in direct opposition to both Roman rule and Jewish leadership. As king, Jesus threatened the authority of those that Rome had put in positions of authority. And as Messiah, he challenged the faith of the Jewish religious leaders and also the authority of their particular reading of scripture. So as what would become his final days unfolded, Jesus was challenged and eventually condemned by both. What I find particularly interesting is how the religious leaders responded to Jesus. They were highly critical of him. They were critical of who he was, how he lived, who he related to, and his interpretation of scripture. And their criticism intensified once Jesus entered Jerusalem because they could see him up close and personal. They saw him doing all kinds of things like violating the law by healing the sick or by picking grains uh, heads of grain on the Sabbath by associating with undesirables like tax collectors and prostitutes and non-Jewish people. He didn't wash his hands in the traditional manner before he ate a meal. So they began to publicly challenge him, question his scriptural interpretation in an attempt to discredit him and to discredit his ministry. And over and over and over again, as Jesus often does, he turned the tables on them through a series of scathing parables and with very insightful rhetoric, Jesus challenged their authority, challenged their understanding of scripture until finally the Sadducees were struck speechless. They just threw up their hands and gave up. The Pharisees though, they gave it one more shot. Jesus, which of the commandments is greatest, they ask. 
And without hesitation, Jesus quotes the most fundamental, ancient, and widely recited biblical passage of their time. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he does something that no one had ever done before. He links this commandment with one from Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. At that time, the core of scripture was the law and the teachings of the prophets. So what Jesus is saying is that all of scripture hangs on these two commandments. I point this out because his answer not only reveals the essence of God's character and highlights our greatest challenge as those who belong to God, but it also demonstrates how Jesus interpreted scripture. In my very first theology class, my um, professor in seminary, he introduced the concept of norms. A norm is an authoritative standard. It's a standard by which all related matters are evaluated. So for example, when my kids were babies and I took them to the pediatrician, they would measure the circumference of their head. And then based on averages, they would determine whether or not my daughter fell within the norm of head circumference. As long as they did, I could sleep at night. So my teacher said that when we interpret scripture, there are norms that we use. There are standards against which we measure our understanding of scripture. As Christians, we understand Jesus Christ to be the word of God, made flesh. He's the fullest revelation of God that we have. So in Jesus Christ, in his birth, in his life and ministry, in his death and resurrection, we get to see what God is like in the flesh. How does God think? How does God feel? How would God respond? So when we interpret scripture from a Christian perspective, Jesus Christ is the norm that norms all norms. In other words, if we read something in scripture and it is not consistent with who we understand God to be, as we've experienced God in and through Jesus Christ, then we need to dig a little bit deeper. We need to ask some questions. And for Jesus, the norm that norms all norms was these two commandments, love God and love neighbor. If your understanding of scripture, Jesus says, is not consistent with love of God and neighbor, then it needs to be reevaluated. Love was the lens through which Jesus read scripture, and he did not take for granted interpretations that had been handed down to him. He understood scripture as the living, breathing word of God through which God continues to speak to us. And if a particular scripture in a particular context violated the law of love, violated who he knew God to be, he rethought it. When I read the five to eight scriptures in the Bible that are used to condemn gay people or are used to exclude them from full participation in the church, I find them to be inconsistent with my understanding of the character and heart of God as I experience God through Jesus. And when I ask questions, when I begin to dig deeper, I discover that four 
of those scriptures aren't even about homosexuality at all. But they're about a violent form of abuse meant to humiliate and dehumanize its victims. Then two of those scriptures are found in the Holiness Code, which is in Leviticus. And it's, it's right there alongside many other scriptures that we no longer follow. They're no longer relevant or helpful. It's things like don't plant two crops in the same field or don't mix um, blended fabrics. Don't use blended fabrics. Don't eat shellfish. Don't stone your children to death if they disobey you. We don't do that anymore. And two of the other passages that come up actually condemn practices of temple prostitution. They are not referring to our current understanding of a homosexual relationship, a loving, mutual, committed relationship between two members of the same gender. May I remember that we too are one, one in the call to pray to God and one in the love that calls us to that prayer. Louise finally, after desperately praying and trying everything she knew to do to change herself, had an intervention with God. She cried out to God in deep prayer and when deep spoke to deep, she knew, she discovered that God accepts her. God loves her unconditionally. And because of that love, the love that created her, the love that drew her to God, a love that was demanding and irresistible, she was able finally to truly and deeply give herself to another human being a soulmate who she was drawn to by that same irresistible pull, a love that she could not walk away from, a love that made her whole and made her life full, that allowed her to become all God had created her to be and to share that so generously with us, a gift. We are all so different. Some of those differences are really hard to overcome. We all struggle. I struggle to accept some people. I struggle to reconcile the behavior and attitudes of some people with my understanding of scripture. I think we all do, but as faithful people, that's what we're called to. We're called to struggle to wrestle with scripture and God and each other because we too are one. One in the call to pray to God and one in the love that calls us to that prayer. A love that is demanding. It demands that we love each other despite our differences, because of our differences, in celebration of our differences. It demands that we read scripture and live our lives in light of the love of God that we experience through Jesus Christ. A love that is absolutely irresistible. A love that couldn't resist us. 
a love so determined to draw us near. It walked all the way to the cross. We too are one in that love. Amen. If you would